Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome to our Hot Topics in CT, the full edition. And I've looked back over the last three months, kind of looked at some of the stuff I've read, either because I had some questions at work, but mainly focusing on some of the new stuff in the literature. Some of this will eventually make it into many of our lectures, but I thought I would uh, spend some time covering it with you. Also, we'll provide you some references that I think will indeed be worthwhile for you to take a look at. Okay, let's start with the aorta and look at something old and something new. Some basic facts. We do lots of thoracic aortas. We do gated studies. We do non-gated studies. We're valuing the thoracic aorta, the abdominal aorta. A lot of our volume is increasing because of endovascular stents, for example, preoperative planning, follow-up studies. So lots of things we can do. So let's look at the aortic valve first of all. On gated acquisitions, we see the valve very well. The normal valve, three semilunar cusps, and diastole, of course, the valve closes. In systole, the valves retract to create a triangular opening, that aortic valve area. There have been some articles looking at the accuracy of CT versus echo for calculating the volume of area, and CT indeed is very good for doing that, and maybe we'll cover that in a later talk. Now, of course, when the valve is diseased, you often see calcification, you can see myxomatous degeneration, you can see fibrosis due to neovascularization, or you can see the sequela of infection. And so what will typically happen with valvular calcification, um, the lumen will decrease, you'll often get secondary findings of aortic stenosis, which results in dilatation of the ascending aorta because of the jet stream of contrast, and things we've shown and discussed previously, but sort of a nice uh, discussion. And when you look at the aorta, there's a number of different pathologies we look at. Most commonly, we're looking at aneurysms. We also look at pseudoaneurysms, whether it be due to trauma, due to surgical repair. Intramural hematomas are very important, particularly as how we manage them. Penetrating ulcers are becoming more common, I think, because we can see things better because of our better techniques. And of course, dissection is always something we're looking at, true and false lumen. So those are the typical pathologies. Now, in terms of the aorta, I think one thing often that's not discussed is some of the basic measurements. So at least put this in your mind. This was a good article a couple years ago making the point uh, about what we can look at. When you look at aortic measurements, some of the basic measurements, mid-ascending aorta should be less than four centimeters, descending aorta less than three centimeters. When you look at the abdominal aorta, we talk about under three centimeters proximally, and it tapers down to about 2.5 centimeters more distally. The aorta will normally enlarge with age. There is a slight difference in size between systole and diastole, but it's under two millimeters and not very much of any consequence. And these are very good measurements to remember. The reason it becomes important is when we start looking at some of the complications, we often speak about rupture and it relates directly to size. So 5.5 centimeters is typically a surgical threshold for the ascending aorta, 6.5 centimeters as a surgical threshold for the descending aorta. So those numbers become very important. Uh, complications, of course, aortic aneurysms, we said dissection, aortic regurgitation. If it gets large enough, it can compress adjacent structures, including nerves, the trachea, for example, or esophagus. And of course, not uncommon in patients who have um, aortic aneurysms is concomitant coronary artery disease. Now, when you look into the abdomen, we mentioned under three centimeters is normal, so over three centimeters is large. We consider that an aneurysm. Between four and 5.4 or 5.5 centimeters, we typically monitor patients as long as it's not growing rapidly or there are other findings. But above 5.4 centimeters, potentially it does warrant repair. And that's some of the Society for Vascular Surgery practice guidelines. 
Now, when you talk about aneurysm growth rate, mean expansion rate of, of typically is 2.6 to 3.6 millimeters per year. Again, that 1.4 millimeters is a typical correlate. Growth rate directly correlates with size, and aneurysms that enlarge rapidly are at an increased risk for rupture. When you look at an aorta, the other things we'll look at, and again, I'm having a new talk I'm putting together showing you many images, and in this pearls, I'm not going to give you images. We talk about a crescent sign, which is this haziness around the aorta suggesting impending rupture. Had a great case last week. And then, of course, the, what we call the draped aorta sign, which is a contained rupture. And with a draped aorta sign, it's typically not identifiable as distinct from adjacent structures. That is the posterior wall of the aorta. And it closely follows the contour of adjacent vertebral bodies. And there's an article a couple years ago. It's worthwhile looking to uh, this article. It has some very nice images. Now, I mentioned most of what we spend time with are aneurysms. We also see pseudoaneurysms. There's a good article by Linda Chu coming out about this. It's often a sequel of cardiac surgery, particularly in the ascending aorta near the uh, coronary arteries. And the ascending aorta is the most common location. It can arise from surgically manipulated locations, proximal valve graft anastomosis, distal aortic anastomosis, coronary button reimplantation, or vein graft anastomosis. Those are the common areas, you know, areas where you've had surgery. Now, a topic that's very important is intramural hematomas. How you manage it will be variable depending on location. Many people advocate surgery for sending aorta intramural hematomas, maybe not in the emergency situation, but a, what you would call a timely surgery. So some of the criteria for observation, the patient's stable, there's no persistent pain, the aorta is under 5 centimeters, the hematoma is less than a centimeter thick, there's small effusions, no aortic insufficiency. Those are some of the common things. But if the patient has pain, if it's progressing to aortic, uh, it's, it's progressing where the patient could have a aortic insufficiency, there's increased thickness, the aortic diameter is over five centimeters, increasing effusion, tamponade. Those are all where people would suggest that surgery will need to be done. Remember, most of the time with intramural hematomas, it's hypertensive management and no surgical intervention. With intramural hematomas, when you do follow-up, they generally decrease in size or resolve. But of course, they can progress to other pathology, fusiform aneurysms, dissection, and development of ulcer-like projections. And as these complications, why many people suggest this timely surgery is necessary. I mentioned a few moments ago about penetrating ulcers. Um, it's due to underlying atherosclerotic disease. The atheromatous plaques erode and penetrate the internal elastical lamina. And 80% of these will have at least focal intramural hematomas. I mentioned I see penetrating ulcers more commonly. I think these, these really small ones is what I'm referring to. And I think that's because with a more gated acquisition or faster acquisition with a flash scanner, you have much better detail and those little tiny ulcerations are indeed better to see in that scenario. Now with penetrating ulcers, of course, the complications, aneurysms, pseudoaneurysms, it can lead to dissection or rupture. And again, this rupture risk relates to aortic size. Again, over 5 cm with a penetrating ulcer, you probably should be thinking about endovascular stenting or doing surgery. Now, we speak a lot about aortic dissection, and just a few things I read, and I'll just mention them because I saw some nice lists, things you probably all know. The typical causes for dissection, patients with aneurysms, hypertension, trauma, iatrogenic, 
including angiography, collagen vascular disease, particularly something like Ehlers-Danlos, cardiac surgery, penetrating ulcers, or a bicuspid or replaced aortic valve can all be predisposing causes. When you talk about the section, you can classify it as DeBakey or Stanford. Most people use the Stanford classification, type A, ascending aorta, type B, no involvement of the ascending aorta, typically beginning past the left subclavian, and you can see the DeBakey classification. In patients with dissection, the complications, of course, can range from rupture to pericardial tamponade to end-organ ischemia, particularly when you have involvement of mesenteric vessels. And over time, the false lumen can dilate, resulting in aneurysm formation and compression of the true lumen, which can result in ischemic changes as well. Depending on the scenario, including the patient, the surgeon, and the extent of involvement, Repair can be done with a surgical endograft, with a surgical bypass graft, or an endoluminal stent placement. And more and more we're seeing these endoluminal stent placements. Just by surgery, it's kind of interesting. The first successful surgical repair was in 1951 using a cadaver graft. Prior to this, techniques included cellophane wrapping and ligation. And I think Albert Einstein was one of those people. And here was a good article looking at some of the history. And it really is amazing how far we've come in the last 60 or so years. Now, when you speak about stent planning, CT is really good. We can look at the aneurysm, defining its size, including diameter and length and location. We define the branch vessels, and we also will pick up reasons why stent placement may not be possible. The femoral or iliac arteries are too small and caliber, or there's too, they're too ectatic, or there's stenosis present. Remember, in a thoracic aorta pre-stent planning, you need at least one CM normal aortic wall between the landing zone of of the stent and major branches. The diameter of the proximal and distal aortic necks becomes very critical, as is the diameter of the femoral and iliac arteries. And things including not only aortic uh, stents, but aortic valve replacements, uh, these measurements become very critical, particularly if you need to put a stent through or a valve with this core valve, for example, again, the size of those femoral and iliac vessels become very, very important. Good article, again, some of the technical notes about this one to one and a half centimeter distance between proximal landing zone and renal artery, the importance of the infrarenal neck and neck angulation are all critical findings in abdominal aortic aneurysm uh, placement. And again, once you have stent placement, successfully aneurysms will decrease in size progressively, but typically in the abdominal aorta. When you see or don't see the the uh, native aortic aneurysm getting smaller or it gets larger, then you have to consider the presence of an endoleak. And then you need to evaluate branch vessels for compromise, and you may need to change stent positioning. We know about stent complications. We've spoken about that before. Incomplete apposition, endoleak, vascular occlusion, migration, and dissection are all complications. So something very important to be aware of. Now, another thing, at least I'll just re repeat again probably, is when you're looking at aortic pathology, aneurysms, dissections, and other surgical pathology that involve ascending aorta and arch and descending aorta and abdominal aorta may require a stage procedure. It's just so much length of involvement. And things that are being done, ascending grafts and an elephant trunk prosthesis, uh, into the descending thoracic aorta, maybe step one, 
and then descending aorta and abdominal aorta may be step two. So two different stage replacements. Again, the whole area of reconstructive surgery, these elephant grafts indeed become very important. It protects the disease descending thoracic aorta until the second segment of the surgery can be performed. It's used as part of the descending aorta graft at the second surgery and enables the second surgery to be performed distal to the first surgical location in an altered tissue planes. And there's a good article from Hopkins that's coming out in AJR on elephant trunk repair and we'll... Uh, leave it to them. There's also a, uh, on CT as us, there's in the um, 2011 uh, ARRS exhibits, there's an exhibit on elephant trunk repair. Okay, so we've done the aorta. Let me just quickly do a little bit about retroperitoneal masses. We see lots of retroperitoneal masses. Differential diagnosis will range from mesodermal tumors to neurogenic neoplasms, germ cell, sex cord and stromal tumors, and lymphoid and hematologic malignancies. Uh, again, CT appearance is often very suggestive. Density, size, location, patient sex, patient's age are all important factors. If we look at mesodermal neoplasms, just some of the facts. Liposarcoma, leiomyosarcoma, and malignant fibrous histiocytoma make up over 80% of these tumors. They're more common in patients in the fifth and sixth decades of life. And they're often aggressive tumors that may result in local extension or metastasis to liver, lung, bone, and brain. So they can be very aggressive. Tumors are infiltrating and can be incredibly difficult to resect with negative margins. So for example, liposarcoma is the most common sarcoma. 10 to 15% of all liposarcomas occur in the retroperitoneum. You see the age of the patients, 50 to 70. They're large, often 20 centimeters or greater. There's four different subtypes with well-differentiated, the most common in the retroperitoneum. A couple comments about leiomyosarcoma. Just like liposarcomas, they're large. The more common in women, again, the fifth and sixth decades, a little different than liposarcomas. On CT, they're usually solid masses, but maybe cystic and necrotic as well. And 6% of leiomyosarcomas arise from the IVC and are primary in the IVC, but that's a very rare tumor. Most tumors in the IVC are extension from renal cell, hepatoma, and adrenal carcinoma. Malignant fibrous histiocytoma, a couple facts, is the most common sarcoma in the body with 15% of the retroperitoneum. This group is more common in male, though the age is the same as the leiomyosarcomas and essentially liposarcomas. The mass may be solid or necrotic and may contain calcification. Occasionally liposarcomas have calcification, but it's more common in MFH and that may help uh, with the differential diagnosis. There are other retroperitoneal sarcomas. Um, typically, rhabdomyosarcomas are seen in younger patients, usually around age seven and then in the teenage years. And angiosarcoma, chondrosarcoma, synovial cell carcinoma all do occur. They're a bit younger patients, age 15 to 40, but those are pretty uncommon tumors. So hopefully I've gone through some pearls. I think we'll stop here and then take a look at some of the additional information in part two of this talk. Thank you very much.